You can open up with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be in Ephesians 5 verses 1 to 7. This morning I will read verses 1 to 21. Some of you know that on Wednesday evenings we've been going through Ephesians the past several weeks. We've made it through chapter 4. We've come to the first verse now of chapter 5. And for the next several weeks on Sunday mornings, we'll continue to go through chapter 5 in Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, I'm in Galatians chapter 5, it won't do much good to read that. (laughs) Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us, gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord." Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Not too long ago, I came across a sermon online that caught my attention because the sermon was preached by someone who had the same name of a friend of mine in college, and he had a unique name. And so intrigued, I clicked on the sermon and began to listen to it. But only after a few minutes, really a few moments, I realized that it couldn't be my friend uh, as I listened to the voice because my friend was raised in Virginia, born and raised in Virginia. He spoke like a Virginian, used the vocabulary of a Virginian. But the man that I was listening to in this sermon was very clearly British, spoke like a Brit, used terminology like a Brit. And so I decided, certainly couldn't be my friend, but just out of curiosity, I clicked on 
the link for the website for the church and went to the leadership page. And sure enough, right there was a picture of my friend from years ago in college. Same name, same face, certainly the same fella, and the same one who preached that sermon with a British accent. And I thought, what in the world? And so it turns out that this friend of mine, he'd been in England now for uh, over 10 years, ended up getting married, settling down, became a pastor of a church there, and apparently picked up the accent in the process. And as I considered that and thought about how it is that someone could go from sounding one way 10 years ago to sounding so differently now, I was struck and reminded of the power of imitation. When we are surrounded by people who talk a certain way and use certain words and phrases and think a certain way, then almost inevitably we're going to begin talking and sounding and thinking like the people around us. In fact, there's something, I think, in us as human beings that is geared toward imitation. You think of a little daughter and the way that she mimics her mother in her gestures, her mannerisms, her speech. Or an athlete often imitates his, his favorite athlete, the, the, the star of his sport. He tries to be just, just like him. Even as preachers, we can start to imitate preachers we listen to. And I need to be careful not to sound like Anthony when I'm preaching on Sunday mornings. There's this natural tendency toward imitation. We are built for it. And if we're not intentionally imitating someone or something then we will unintentionally be imitating something or someone. That's true in the spiritual realm as well. It takes no effort to imitate the world around us. There are social pressures pushing us toward imitation of the world. There are spiritual pressures pushing us toward imitation of the world. There are internal pressures in our own hearts, the remaining effects of our sinful flesh that push us toward imitation of the world. And if we go through life passively, without thinking seriously about who or what we're imitating, then we will begin to be imitators of the world. But the Christian, as we will see this morning and in the coming weeks, is not called to go through life passively, or thoughtlessly, or carelessly, imitating the patterns around us, But instead, we're called to proactively be imitators of God. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God. That's the theme for the sermon this morning. It will be the theme for the coming sermon as well next week. Be imitators of God. And if you look down through Ephesians chapter 5, if you look at verse 2, you'll see three times throughout the chapter that he uses the command to walk. Verse 2, he says, walk in love. Then if you jump down to verse 8, he says, you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. And then in verse 15, he says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And so what I hope we'll see as we work our way through this chapter is that imitating God involves at least those three elements, walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. 
This morning, we'll just be considering what it is to walk in love. We are to be imitators of God, particularly by walking in love. And as we work our way through the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 5, we'll see three components of what it is to walk in love. What's required if we as Christians are going to walk in love? Well, first, verse 1, we need to know our sonship. To know our sonship, verse 1. And then in verse 2, we need to model Christ's sacrifice. If we're going to walk in love, we must model Christ's sacrifice, verse 2. And then lastly, if we're to imitate God by walking in love, we must pursue purity. That's in verses 3 to 7. Pursue purity. Knowing our sonship, modeling Christ's sacrifice, and pursuing purity. So first, in order to walk in love, We must know our sonship. Look again at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. All throughout Ephesians, if you've been here on Wednesday evenings or if you were here last year as we went through it on certain Sunday mornings, we've seen again and again that the Christian's identity is the starting point for all obedience. In fact, the first three chapters of this letter don't contain really a single command with regard to what we're supposed to do. For three chapters of of the letter of Ephesians, Paul tells us who we are in Christ. It's not until the very first verse of chapter 4 that Paul begins to tell us what to do. It's because our identity is the foundation for our living. We don't start to do until we have a right understanding of who we are. And once again, we see that same pattern and principle applied here in the first verse of chapter 5. Paul first speaks about our adoption as sons before he tells us how we're to, to live. Our identity has to do with who we are as sons of God. And it's only as we understand that that we're enabled and equipped to walk in love and to imitate him. This is not the first place in Ephesians that Paul talks about sonship. If you flip back just two pages or so in your Bible, maybe one page, back in chapter 1, in verses 4 and 5, well, really just verse 5, we read, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Adoption as sons. Before the foundation of the world, before any of creation was fashioned or formed, God planned and purposed to adopt us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying there. And the word adoption simply means to put someone into the position of a son, a child, a true child. It's to take someone who is not a biological child, but to make them with, as, as, a, as a true member of the family to have all of the rights and privileges of true sonship. That's what God has done for us. We were spiritual orphans in a sense. In fact, if you want to be technical, we were actually children of the devil in our sin, according to the scriptures. And God has taken us and he has adopted us. And through our union with the true son, Jesus Christ, he has made us his true children. And he's given us all of the affection, all of the rights, all of the privileges that belong to a true child, a true son. And in light of this sonship, in light of the fact that we are children of God, Paul says, be imitators of your father. 
We read the same thing in 1 Peter where it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts, but be holy like the Holy One who called you. Be obedient children. Be like your Father. But even as children of God, we are still in danger of being motivated at times by the wrong sorts of things, often because of a wrong understanding of who our Father is. We might wrongly view God as a volatile Father, we might think that at any point, he, in, in, in his anger and in his wrath toward us, he might mistreat us or treat us unnecessarily harshly because we don't measure up. And so we obey primarily out of a fear of punishment from our Father. Or we might view God wrongly as a berating and shaming Father. A father who is eager to shame us and despise us and to show us how worthless we are in our sin. And so we try to obey him simply out of a desire to avoid the experience of that kind of guilt and shame. Or we might view him as a father we can manipulate. We might think that if we live obediently in certain areas of life, he might finally give us the thing that we really think we need. And so we obey out of a desire to twist our father's arm into giving us the the thing we think we need. Or we may... Obey simply because we wrongly view him as a father with fragile affections. A father whose kindness and love comes and goes according to our performance. He loves us when we do well. He has affection for us when we do well. He turns his back on us when we don't. And so we feel a pressure to obey him just so we know we haven't lost his affection. The affection of a fragile father. But when Paul calls us beloved children, here in verse 1, He guards us from every single one of those wrong motives. God is not a volatile father. He's not a father we can manipulate. He's not a father who delights in shaming his children and reminding them of how utterly worthless they are. He's not a father with weak affection. Instead, he is an eternal father who loves us dearly with an unchangeable and irrevocable love. And we, as his beloved children, are to delight in him and to obey him in that context. Not to gain his love. You can't gain it. It's already yours if you're in Christ. Not to avoid his wrath. You've already avoided it if you've taken refuge in his son. Not to manipulate him or twist his arm because you know, as your heavenly father, he already knows exactly what you need. He knows how to care for you well, as we heard last week, as your shepherd And you shall not want. And you can trust your Father. And so we don't obey out of any of those wrong motives, but we obey as beloved children of God. Simply because we belong to him and we love our Father. So the first component then of imitating God by walking in love is knowing our sonship. It's understanding that this is your identity. If you are in Christ, you are a beloved child of your heavenly Father. Second, if we are to walk in love, then we must model Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2, Paul says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. If we are to walk in love, the primary place we must look as our pattern and our example to model, is the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul says, 
walk in love as Christ loved you. That word there, loved, it's in a certain tense that tells us he's referring to one time in history, one point in history, one action that took place that was begun and finished at a certain point in time. When Paul says Jesus loved you, he's pointing back to a certain event in history where Christ loved you. And of course, we know that that event is the death of Christ on the cross. That's why he says Christ loved you at the point in time and in the way that he gave himself up for you. That's how he loved you. When Paul says for there, he gave himself up for you. It's not only that Jesus gave himself up for your sake, for your benefit, in order to do you good. That's certainly true. The idea here is actually for, as in in your stead, in your place. He gave himself up for you in your place. When we envision Christ suspended on the cross, when we think about him hanging there under the wrath of God, rejected by sinful men, and even at that point in time, rejected by his heavenly Father, having the wrath of God poured out on him, we should remember he was there for us in our stead. In other words, we were supposed to be there. That's where we belonged. But Christ put himself there for us, in our place. There is no greater demonstration then, as we know, of the love of Christ than his substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And he did so willingly. He gave himself up, Paul says. He gave himself up. The Bible makes very clear on repeated occasions that Jesus died for us willingly, of his own accord. He says in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then just a few verses later, he says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. Who took Jesus' life from him? Who forced him to go to the cross? Jesus did. He laid it down willingly, out of love. It was his love for his sheep, he says, that compelled him as the good shepherd to go to the cross and to give himself up for us. In love, he gave himself up. Or, in the poetic words of Michael Card, Why did it have to be a heavy cross he was made to bear? And why did they nail his feet and hands? His love would have held him there. There was nothing holding Jesus to the cross apart from his love for you and his desire to please his Father, which is the next place Paul goes. He died for us, but he died as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The language of offering and sacrifices is the language of the Old Testament temple. Year after year, God's people would offer all forms of sacrifices and offerings at the appointed times and in the appointed ways, and that went on for years and years, day after day. But only in a temporary and in a provisional sense were these offerings and these sacrifices ever really pleasing to God. Only in a temporary sense, only in a provisional sense. Because their true significance of all of those offerings, of all of those sacrifices, was only ever to point forward to the ultimate offering and the ultimate sacrifice that would be truly a fragrant aroma to God. Every sacrifice, every offering in the Old Testament, it points us to the ultimate offering of Jesus Christ where he offered himself as a fragrant offering to his Father. 
His perfect life of obedience, this perfect life of Jesus, of obedience, was fragrant to his Father. And when that life was crushed on the cross as a sacrifice, it was a pleasing aroma to his Father. It was pleasing because, one, it was perfectly obedient, but it was pleasing also because it was the full satisfaction and appeasement of the wrath of God. His justice, rightly so, in his holiness, cries out for punishment. We have that inherently in us as well. When we see crimes, when we see wickedness and evil, there is something in us that cries out for justice. God, in the same way, he is righteous and holy, and he is determined for justice to be served. But the cross tells us that justice was served on his son when he offered his life as the sacrifice so that it might not fall on us. So Paul is saying here then that we are to walk in love after the pattern or modeling the sacrificial love of Jesus. He loved us and he gave himself up for us and he loved his father and he gave himself up in order to please his father. And those two components, that's what it is to walk in love. It is to walk in the self-denying sacrificial love of Jesus Christ that we see in his death And it's to do so out of an ultimate aim of being pleasing, our lives being a fragrant aroma to the Lord, to our Father. There's nothing more pleasing, there's no aroma that's more fragrant to God than a life of sacrificial, self-denying love patterned after Jesus Christ. We're reminded of that repeatedly through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13 would be a great place to go. It says if we don't have love, particularly this kind of love, then we're nothing it says. It profits us nothing, and we are nothing. 1 Corinthians 13. There's nothing more pleasing to God than a life of sacrificial Christ-like love. And to walk in love does mean a willingness to pay the cost. It may cost us our time, our resources, emotional energy. Walking in the love of Christ may cost us the price of swallowing bitterness, resentment, in order to extend gracious forgiveness. It may cost us our pride, being willing to listen and not argue back, even when we disagree with someone. It may cost us our reputation, speaking the truth in love, truthfully, even when speaking the truth in love means others around us, other people around us, call us unloving for it. It may cost us our reputation. We are to walk in love, costly love, as we follow the pattern of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we're to walk in love as we pursue purity. We walk in love by pursuing purity. Look with me at verses 3 to 7. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. We must pursue purity. Paul is dealing here in these verses primarily with the problem of sexual sin. The selfless, sacrificial love of Christ, which is seen in the cross, stands in complete contrast and contradiction 
to the self-centered and self-gratifying and radically damaging nature of immorality and sexual sin. As we strive to walk in love, we must strive to walk in purity. Paul says first in verse 3, but immorality or any impurity, I'll go on to say, must not even be named among you. Immorality or any impurity. These two words have to do with any perversion at all, any corruption of God's design for physical intimacy. God created physical intimacy as a good thing to be enjoyed in its proper context between one man and one woman in the context of covenant marriage. And any attempt to satisfy lusts or desires outside of that context of covenant marriage between one man and one woman falls into the category of immorality or any impurity. This includes any attempt to gratify lusts and sexual desires by means of physical interaction, visual observation, mental imagination, or verbal communication. Anything that distorts or perverts God's good design falls into the category of immorality and impurity. Paul also says that we should have nothing to do with greed. Given the fact that greed here is connected to immorality and impurity, most likely he's referring to greed in that context. One commentator described it this way. He said, this, this sort of greed that Paul's talking about here, covetousness, it's an unrestrained sexual greed whereby a person assumes that others exist for his or her own gratification. Next, Paul then moves from sinful deeds and sinful desires to sinful speech. He says in verse 4, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. Even in our speech, there's to be no hint of immorality or impurity, he says. Filthiness refers to something that should make us blush, something that's shameful, embarrassing even to mention. Silly talk, it has to do with foolish or empty talk, senseless, careless talk, thoughtless talk. That's the idea. And again, in this context, in connection to the other terms around it, it likely refers to making light of or twisting God's good design for sexual intimacy. And there should be no coarse jesting, even in our humor, in our joking. There should be no perversion of what is pure. All of these things, Paul says, in their entirety, he says, should not even be named among you. Immoral, impure, impure thoughts, actions, or desires should not even be named among you. That means these sins should be so far from the practice and the heart of Christians that no one would even think to associate the two together. They shouldn't even be named among you. They shouldn't enter into the same sentence because they're complete contrasts. So to summarize then, anything we do, whether in actions or thoughts or words that distorts God's good design and seeks to gratify sexual desires outside of the context of marriage between one man and one woman is the opposite of Christian love. It's actually self-love, self-service, self-gratification, and it's to have no place at all in the life of the Christian or in the life of the church. So the question then is, how do we pursue purity? How do we make sure that these sins are not even named among us? Well, thankfully, these verses give us helpful guidance in that area as well. If you notice in verse 4, right in the middle of this discussion, Paul says, but rather giving of thanks. 
stands in contrast to the other things around it, the very opposite, giving of thanks. A cynical, ungrateful heart is a prime target for temptation. I think that's what Paul's getting at. It's interesting that in verse 5, Paul equates this greedy desire for sexual pleasure. He equates it with idolatry. Do you notice that in verse 5? He says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater. As Sean read through Romans 1, we saw the connection between idolatry and sexual sin. The very opposite of a grateful heart is a cynical, ungrateful, and idolatrous heart. Sexual sin, then, is equal to worshiping something other than God. We don't think that God is enough, and we don't think that his design and his plans for us are enough. We don't think that he's able to give us what we think we need. And so in our lack of gratitude, in our lack of thankfulness, in our lack of trust, we start looking to gratify our desires our own way and in our own timing. The very opposite of a cynical heart, this idolatrous heart, this ungrateful heart, is a thankful heart. It's a heart that's conscious of God's goodness. It's confident in his provision, and it's happy to rest in him and to trust him, even when we seem to have unmet desires. Ian Hamilton addresses this when he says, Fundamentally, when the Christian refuses to engage in sexual immorality, it is not as much a matter of obedience as a matter of trust. Will we trust our heavenly Father, who spared not his only Son for us, who has redeemed us by his blood, who has made us his dear children, to seek our best? He can be trusted absolutely. It's not so much a matter of obedience, he says, as a matter of trust. Will you trust your heavenly Father in the face of sexual temptation? So we pursue purity then by cultivating a thankful, grateful heart. And then second, we pursue purity by heeding the warnings. Notice again what Paul says in verses 5 to 7. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. These are real warnings to be heeded. Jesus came for those who are spiritually sick. He didn't come for those who are well. He came for those who are sick, sick with things like immorality and impurity. But Jesus didn't come in order to leave us in our sickness. Yes, Christians will struggle at times, including in the area of sexual sin. And as we repent in grief and come to Christ, we are promised that as we come to him in faith and repentance, there is all sufficient forgiveness and cleansing and grace and healing in him for us as believers. But what Paul is reminding us of in these verses is that there's a difference between the struggling Christian and the person who is determined to live a life of immorality. The person who continues in stubborn, unrepentant sexual sin, who refuses to turn away from it in order to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in purity, is a person who has never known the grace of Christ. Such people are described here by the Apostle Paul as sons of disobedience upon whom the wrath of God comes. They're described as those who have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
And Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says there in verses 9 to 11, speaking of this same topic, if I can find it, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Sounds very similar to what he just said in Ephesians. They will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. We must let no one deceive us, he says, both in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians. Let no one deceive you. It is impossible to live a life given over to immorality and impurity and at the same time claim to be a worshiper and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let no one deceive you. It's what the inspired word of God says. But praise God that this same word of God tells us that sexual immorality and impurity are not the end of the story for us if we're in Christ. He says, such were some of you in 1 Corinthians. You were that way. In fact, I think all of us would agree that that category describes us in some measure by nature. That's all of us. We were all sick in our sins. Such were some of you, he says. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. This morning, no matter how immoral or impure your background or even your present context might be, what we're being told in the scriptures in that verse is that if you come to Jesus Christ in faith, he will thoroughly wash you. And you will be completely cleansed and justified and made holy, forgiven of all of your sins because of him. Those who are in Christ are not who they once were. We are a new creation, washed and purified in the name of Jesus by his Spirit. And that takes us to the third and final way that we're to pursue purity. We must remember our identity. So we must cultivate thankfulness. We must heed the warnings. But then lastly, we must remember our identity. The purpose of these verses is primarily to remind Christians. Yes, there's a warning, but primarily the emphasis is a reminder of your identity if you're in Christ. To point out the complete contradiction that exists between who you are in Christ and sexual impurity. Look again at what Paul says in verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. And he says, as is proper among the saints as is proper among the saints. Verse 4, he says, which are not fitting. It's not proper. It's not fitting, he says. That's why you should not pursue a life of sexual sin, because it's not fitting. It's not proper. Proper for what? Proper for who you are. You are a saint, he says, if you're in Christ. You are a holy one. Literally, that's what the word saint means. You are a holy one, one who has been set apart to live a sanctified life unto Jesus Christ. 
Or as we've already read many times in Ephesians, as we've gone through the book, some of the other things Paul says about our identity in Christ, the reason it's not proper for us to live in that kind of sin, or in any sin really, is because in Christ we've been made alive. We used to be dead, but in Christ you've been made alive. In Christ, by his blood, you have been forgiven. In Christ, you are a new creature, created in Christ for good deeds. In Christ, you're a beloved child adopted by your heavenly Father. In Christ, you are an heir together with him, sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And you, with that same Holy Spirit, by that same Spirit, have become a holy dwelling place for God. Why is it improper for a Christian to live in sexual impurity? Because you are a saint in Christ. Because you're holy by virtue of your union with Jesus. And what Paul is saying is if that is who you are now, there is nothing more unfitting, nothing more improper or contradictory than for you to go back to living the old way. You belong to Jesus. He has loved you. We've just seen that he gave himself up for you to set you free from those old patterns of sin. And so why would you revert back to the very bondage from which he delivered you? In the words of the Apostle Peter, to do so would be like a dog returning to its vomit. It would be like a pig getting washed, he says, and then going right back into the mud immediately after. That's what it's like for a Christian to go back into immorality or to allow there to be any hint of it in our lives. That's not who we are. Successfully battling Sexual sin and lust requires that we remember who we are. That is the foundation. That is the starting point in our battle against these kinds of sins. Guilt may be strong enough for a while to make us hate sin. Fear may be strong enough to keep us away for a time. But eventually the restraining power of guilt wanes. Eventually fear drifts off. And we're right back to where we were before the same allurements, the same temptations, and no power and no victory over the sin. So where does victory over sin come from? It comes from the victory of Jesus Christ in his death on the cross, and it comes from the victory that he has now given you by virtue of your union with him. Only by knowing, being convinced of, and experiencing the freedom of the new creation that you are in Jesus Christ by grace will you ever be enabled consistently to battle the strength and the force of immorality and sexual sins of all forms and to pursue a life of holy love. So the Christian life is a life of imitation. It is a life that is to be lived, not carried along by the pressures and the forces of the world we read about in Romans 1 earlier, as Sean read it. That is a world that has rejected God. We were right there. We lived along with the rest of the world. We too were sons of disobedience, children of wrath, even like the rest. But that's not where we live any longer. Yes, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to be imitators of him, imitators of God. As pressures push in around us and even from within us towards sin and lovelessness, Of all forms, we're to be intentional about directing our gaze to the one that we're called to imitate. And we do that, especially as we model Christ's love for us, remember our identity in him, and flee all forms of immorality and impurity to pursue a life of purity. We walk in love as Christ loved us, and we do so by remembering how he loved us. He gave himself 
up for us. This morning, we remember that very thing as we take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus wanted this truth to be continually on the minds of his people. As they gathered together for the past 2,000 years, the church has consistently remembered that Jesus gave himself up for us in love. And the way that we've in part remembered that is through the elements of the bread and the cup. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're told the Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we eat the bread, drink the cup this morning, as the body of Christ, a community of the redeemed, We are remembering that we are redeemed because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That is where full pardon is found. That is where forgiveness is found. And so the Lord's Supper is intended to remind us, to assure us, to convince us, and to encourage us in the reality that there's nothing left to do for the accomplishment of your redemption. Jesus has done it all. He has laid down his life for you. He's given himself up for you that Through his body, by his blood, we too are cleansed. That's what we're remembering this morning. We're also remembering that he was not only given over to death, he not only gave himself over to death for us, but he was raised from the dead. And Jesus says every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're not only looking back at his death, but we're remembering we're doing this in a a temporary period of time leading up to the culmination of all of our hope. When the Lord Jesus returns, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking at what he has done, but we are longing for his return when he will finally bring to fulfillment every last one of his promises and fully redeem us and bring us into the kingdom of his Father. Because the Lord's Supper is for those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and are currently walking in fellowship with him, if that doesn't describe you, if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you haven't forsaken your sin and begun to walk in fellowship with him, trusting in his sacrifice for you, then the Lord's Supper is, is not for you. The Bible says not to drink it in an unworthy, eat or drink in an unworthy manner. And so we would ask you not to come to the table today if you're not a Christian, but remember and consider everything that's represented in the blood and in the body, uh, in, in, the, in the bread and in the cup that we'll eat and that we'll drink together. This is a picture of Jesus' death for us, his all-sufficient sacrifice for sins, his certain return, and the free offer of forgiveness if you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on him, repent of your sins, trust in him. There is full forgiveness for you because of his death. The promise of the Bible is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let the elements of the bread and the cup assure you of that this morning. And if you're a believer, Come and eat and drink in the joy of knowing that Jesus has shed his blood on your behalf and you are redeemed through him. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then as Megan plays the piano, we'll make our way up and take the Lord's Supper together. And once everyone has had the opportunity to go through the line, we'll respond by singing together. So let's pray together. Our Father, as we have considered what it is in part to imitate you, 
we recognize that we are in territory that is beyond anything that comes close to our own ability. We are weak and we are prone to imitate the sinful patterns around us or the sinful desires within us. Father, you are holy and you are pure and you are good and we need your continued grace and strength and help to enable us to be good, faithful representatives and imitators of you. We thank you that though we have fallen infinitely short of perfect imitation, that we have sinned terribly and grieved you by a thousand falls, even still, God, you are gracious toward us. You have made provision through the blood of Jesus Christ for the cleansing and the forgiveness of all of our sins. And we pray this morning that as we come and as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we pray that your Holy Spirit would nourish and strengthen our faith, that we would be a people deeply convinced of the all-sufficient love and sacrifice of Jesus. Build us up as your people in that truth, we pray, as we come to the table. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.